Um, but first, what I'll do, I'll begin with some, just some historical background, just to, so we know um, where we're placed, courtesy of, um, it's a summary of Acts 17, where um, Paul first goes to, or goes to um, Thessalonia. So, if you open your Bibles at First Thessalonians, but I'll just start with a bit of a summary of Acts 17. Uh, during Paul's second missionary journey, around 51 AD, Paul and his companions were travelling through northern Greece and had just left Philippi. They took the road south to Thessalonica, where there was a community of Jews. Paul went to their meeting place, like the synagogue, as he usually did when he came to a town. He explained the Old Testament prophets so they understood what they'd been reading all their lives. That this Jesus I'm introducing you to, some of them were won over and joined ranks with Paul and Silas. Among them a great many God-fearing Greeks and a considerable number of women from the aristocracy. But the hard-line Jews became furious over the conversions. Mad with jealousy, they rounded up a bunch of brawlers, mob terrorising the city as they hunted down Paul and Silas. They broke into Jason's house thinking that Paul and Silas were there. And when they couldn't find them, they collared Jason and his friends instead and dragged them before the city fathers, yelling hysterically, These people are out to destroy the world and now they've shown up on our doorstep attacking everything we hold dear. And Jason is hiding them. These traitors and turncoats who say Jesus is king and Caesar is nothing. The city fathers and the crowd of people were totally alarmed by what they heard and they made Jason and his friends post heavy bail and let them go while they investigated the charges. That night, under cover of darkness, their friends got Paul and Silas out of town as fast as they could. But it wasn't long before reports got back to the Thessalonian hardline Jews that Paul was at it again, preaching the word of God, this time in Berea. They lost no time responding and created a mob scene there too. With the help of his friends, Paul gave them the slip, caught a boat, and put out to sea. Silas and Timothy stayed behind. And the men helped the men who helped Paul escape got him as far as Athens and left him there. Paul sent word back with them to Silas and Timothy, come as quickly as you can. But after a short time in Athens, Paul felt the need to receive a report from the newborn church in Thessalonica. So he sent Timothy back to serve and minister to the new believers there. Paul wanted to check on the state of the Thessalonians' faith for fear that false teachers might have infiltrated their number. However, Timothy soon returned with a good report prompting Paul to pen 1 Thessalonians as a letter of encouragement to the new brethren. So, turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to go through to chapter 2.16 and we'll just see how Paul opens this letter of encouragement. Verse 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Father 
And the Lord Jesus Christ you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's first use of the triad of faith, hope and love in this letter. He also does it in chapter 5. Here Paul supports each of these characteristics, faith, hope and love, with reference to use them. That is, works, labour and endurance. Firstly, he tells them, you put your faith into practice. Paul describes faith in the most practical terms possible. Faith is an event that can be seen because it produces a work. Their faith is something tangible. No doubt Timothy's report gave specific examples of the acts that were occurring there and Paul therefore commends them on how they are living out the gospel. Secondly, Paul says to them, your love made you work so hard. Literally, it's a labour of love. Love is a dynamic word because it involves action. What Paul is getting at here is that love is something you do. And there's a lot of hard work and or difficulty at the core of love, of doing love. Anyone who has loved someone through an estrangement with its bitterness and anger come through it, back out the other end to reconciliation with that other person knows the battle involved. That's what Paul's getting at. This idea of love is something you do. Thirdly, he says, your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ is firm. Literally, it has endured. They've held on. Through all this, they've held on. It is the the word Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 when he writes, love endures all things. Paul is grateful to the Thessalonians because they have a hope, they have a hope that stood its ground. These Christians are living in the present situation on the basis that is their expectation of and relationship with Jesus as their Lord. And that's what motivates and sustains them. Their hope in Christ as their Lord. So, what Paul's saying, they with a faith that has works and a love that is hard working because they know Jesus Christ reigns now and will reign forever. What a way to begin a letter. Amazing. I pray that's our reality too. That faith, hope and love are at work here and now in the Point Church. That's what we want to be working at. That's what Paul's calling us to. Verse 4. 
For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You know how we loved, sorry, we know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There are a number of things here that are challenging. Firstly, note how Paul describes the manner in which the gospel was brought to these unbelievers. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Paul calls it his gospel. He owns it. Its message of its truth and its relevance. And the result was that he was bold in the face of all this conflict to preach it because he owned it. Secondly, in spite spite of the severe suffering that had beset these new Christians, they became imitators of Paul and Silas and of the Lord. They saw the reaction of the townsfolk and the way they treated Paul and Silas and their new Christian brothers. Yet they welcomed the message in the midst of this persecution. They took it on with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, and therefore they became a model, they became a model because of this, to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's all around that area. Wouldn't that be great if that's how people talked about us? If that was the reputation that the Point Church had in the Redlands. It's challenging. From these opening words of possibly Paul's earliest letter, we learn an important lesson about the nature of the gospel message, which is as applicable today as it was in the first century. The content of the gospel, the content of the gospel is grounded in faith and action. Faith insofar as one must accept the message of the Lordship of Jesus. This is Paul's calling these new, these new Christians. An action insofar as one must turn away from the practices of idolatry. Words, words and then action. 
The presentation of the gospel, sorry, is found in words and action. First was faith and action, sorry. The presentation of the gospel is words and action. Paul and his colleagues did not simply talk about the gospel. They lived it. He calls it his gospel. He owns it. They lived it. They lived it to the, to the degree that when the new brethren wanted to know how to live as Christians, they imitated the messengers. And then as a consequence, the Thessalonians became exemplars of action to other Greek cities. They took on the message. Finally, the gospel message results in belief and action. By holding to our belief in Jesus' resurrection and our hope in Christ's return, we see several clear results in the lives that Paul will speak about later in the letter that we'll go through over the coming weeks. Things like avoiding sexual immorality, refusing to defraud others, appreciating those Christians who serve on your behalf. Evil. Rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, and giving thanks in all things, to name just a few ways we act out our Christianity. This is what the book of Thessalonians is calling us to. Chapter 2. Paul now begins a very personal narrative in which he reminds his Christian friends of the experience they and he and Silas went through while he was there. Verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we, we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not treating to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. Even though as apostles of Christ, we could have asserted our authority. So why is it that Paul goes over this story? The account of his own journey, his motivation and goals, and his style of life when he's with the church in these critical founding months. Remember that Paul's time there had come to an ignominious end, being forced to make a humiliating flight out of the city during the night. So Paul's adversaries took full advantage of his sudden disappearance in order to undermine his authority and discredit his gospel. They launched a smear campaign. He ran away, hasn't been seen since. He's just another one of those phony teachers who fly through here, pass through here, sweet-talking anyone who will listen, looking for what he can get. got a bit heated, he abandoned you. 
It's not surprising that this kind of talk, coupled with aggressive, the aggressive climate there, might have, might have an influence on the Thessalonian church. And Paul didn't have the luxury of updating his social to let everyone know what had happened to him. Why he'd taken off. But this wasn't really a personal issue for Paul. It wasn't a personal thing. He knew that it mattered for the sake of the gospel. If Paul was discredited, then the gospel message itself would be discredited. That's where Paul's heart is. In his response to these accusations, Paul knows it is important for them to to begin once again at their origins. He goes through the things that had taken place between them, reminding them of key ingredients in their early experience. That's what he's doing, he's calling them back. And I think that's good for us too. I think when I reflect upon it. Because when we're feeling down, things aren't going right, we're questioning our life, we're questioning our faith, what am I doing here? What's happening? I think it's good to reflect on what it was that first brought us to Christ. What was it? Think about that. That's when things are going hard, what was it that brought you here? Paul's emphatic calling to the Thessalonians to witness did two other things to bolster their Christian walk. In the first place, it showed his confidence in them. He had no fear they would succumb to the propaganda being put before them. That's why he's writing to them. That's what he's saying to them. And in the second place, it demonstrated that all the facts required for his vindication were facts of common knowledge. That's why he's trying to put them straight. First he's, he's saying, look, I know, I'm confident in you guys. Paul, I've been given a great report from Timothy, but I just need to set things straight. Paul and Silas had been jailed in Philippi and then been attacked by a mob in Thessalonica. That was fact. They hadn't asked They never took advantage of anyone. On the contrary, Paul writes, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. Just like testing the purity of metals in a coin. Remember, this is 2,000 years ago. We didn't have the Perth Mint. You know, people were, you know, any bit of metal that looked like something was being passed off as money. And just like that, God had tested Paul and the others and they were found genuine. They were the men for the job. Such approval made it unthinkable that their appeal to the Thessalonians stemmed from error or impure motives. Their motives and message centred on pleasing God and benefiting them. That's what Paul's telling them. So on that basis... Whether what he said was comfortable or uncomfortable, Paul's only criteria were the helpfulness of the word and the pattern and integrity of how they carried out their ministry. It certainly didn't include the comfort of the Thessalonians. 
He had been entrusted with the gospel and he took his stewardship seriously. But this proclamation of the whole will of God, the whole will of God, was always tempered with love. Verse 7. Instead, children among you, just as a nursing, nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked day, night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preach the gospel of God to you. You are our witnesses and so is God of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom of glory. Paul didn't just proclaim the truth of the good news to the people of this city. He shared his own life with them. A person who wants to teach small children cannot simply announce a great theory and doctrine from the front of the room, but must spend time to come to become fully involved with their pupils. He was like a mother caring for her little children, getting down on the floor and playing with them, communicating at their level. Or like a father, encouraging, comforting and urging them on. This is Paul. Teaching someone how to be holy, righteous and blameless, that is being able to live a life worthy of God, sometimes means discussing difficult issues and confronting difficult practices in some people's lives. But Paul was both gentle and authoritative. The time they shared together was not just an ideological transaction, but a deeply personal conversion that they experienced. They all experienced it. Not with words alone, but with words and their lives united. Verse 13. We also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things that those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to everyone in the effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, 
They always heap up all their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Again, we're struck with the encouragement and compassion that Paul feels for these fledgling Christians. Firstly, the message they received from Paul and Silas was the word of God. And he commends them for believing. He commends them for believing that what they received was God's message, not something from humans. Paul wants to make this distinction very clear. The word was delivered by men, but the power and life-changing effect comes from God. And this has been proven by how it is shown at work in their lives. Paul wants to be certain that the Christians in that city recognise what has really happened. Not what someone else is saying, some guys from who knows where. It's what's, what's really happened. That's why he's called them back to their origins. It was not just their agreement with an argument made by Paul. It wasn't them just nodding their heads. It was not his eloquence that confirmed in them the truth of the gospel. It was God himself who verified the message by the change in their lives. That's what happened. This is very important for us to understand as we live out the gospel message in our generation. It's always relevant. It's God's word. We do not create the message or control it. It's God's word. We just need to share it. Christians need to remember that it is God through the Holy Spirit who is powerfully at work in the lives powerfully at work in the lives of those who believe the word. It's God's word. It's got power. That power turned pagan idolaters into people who are now prepared and able to persevere in the face of suffering. In the same way that all Jesus can expect to. Just like Jesus promised his followers, his followers at the times, he said. The result of following Jesus is not popularity, it's persecution. This letter speaks to us today. The teaching is timeless and timely for today's church. It was addressed to a small church in a large an overwhelmingly pagan society, a group of people under constant pressure to conform to the norms of that society. Ring a bell? Many today can identify with the Thessalonians in this situation and we can learn from Paul's sustained call to holiness that overcoming the pressure to conform demands consecration, not complacency. So over the next few weeks, let us, let us take in the encouraging messages that we'll be hearing 
from First and Second Thessalonians. 